You're listening to In My Father's House with our pastor and teacher, Mike Venezia, Senior Pastor of Harvest Christian Fellowship in New York City, New York. In my Father's house, there's a place for me. In my Father's house, where I long to be, oh, my heart will not be troubled. I remember what you said. Jesus became our mercy seat. So the mercy seat actually prefigures Jesus Christ. I don't know if you knew that or not. And this word propitiation or to propitiate actually means to appease or placate wrath or anger. That is the wrath and anger of God towards sin. So you see, by his death on the cross, Jesus completely and eternally satisfied God's justice. Today, Pastor Mike helps us understand the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat. The Ark contained the Ten Commandments, but covering that was the mercy seat. When the high priest would annually sprinkle the blood of a sacrifice on the mercy seat, the sins of the people would be atoned for. Rather than just giving a law to abide by, God offered mercy for the many ways the people fell short. In the same way, Jesus came as the perfect sacrifice so that we can have atonement for our sins. Now here's Pastor Mike in the book of 1 Kings chapter 8 as he continues his message, A Very Special Day. John, the beloved apostle, receives the revelation in the Lord's day, and he's worshiping God, and he, from behind he hears this sound like a blaring trumpet, and he turns in the direction from where that sound comes, and he sees Jesus dressed in the garments of a high priest standing in the midst of the menorah, which represents the church, even as Christ is amongst us standing in the midst of this church. So under the New Testament dispensation, if you will, the church also is to be a light unto the world. And all people are to, once again, understand, even as it was in the days of the nation of Israel under the old dispensation, the benefit of knowing the God whom we serve. So that was the first article that was brought into the holy place, the lampstand. But then also, there was the table of showbread. On the showbread, there were 12 loaves. Each one represented the 12 tribes of Israel. They were actually in two stacks of six, and at every Sabbath, so on every seventh day, the priest would actually eat those 12 loaves, and then they would replace the loaves with new bread. And the table of showbread represented how that God provided for his people, how that he fed his people. And often Jesus even spoke of how that he is the bread of life, how that he provides for us and his people. And so that's the significance of the table of showbread. 
And then finally, also there in the holy place, the last article of furniture was the altar of incense. And they would burn incense before the Lord, and the smoke would rise up towards heaven, and God would receive it as a sweet savor unto himself. And remember last time I suggested that that is symbolic of our prayers rising up before the very throne of God, and God hears the prayers of his people. So those are the articles of furniture, the holy furnishings that were found in the holy place. Only the Ark of the Covenant was placed behind the veil, the Ark of the Covenant, in the most holy place, or the holy of holies. So, okay, so this is the second reason why this became a special day, was because of what was carried into the the temple. The Ark of the Covenant, the most important item to be transported into the new temple that Solomon had built. Borne by the priests, as I had mentioned, on long poles and placed behind a thick veil in the Holy of Holies, which separated, there was like two cubicles, right? There was the vestibule, then there was the holy place, and then the inner sanctuary was known as the Holy of Holies. But between the holy place and the Holy of Holies, there was this veil that separated the two. And it was behind that veil that the Ark of the Covenant was placed. And it was borne by the priests on long poles, placed behind the thick veil in the Holy of Holies, where the atonement was made. And the ark was the centerpiece of God's covenant with Israel. And on top was known as the mercy seat. And then you have the two cherubims facing one another and looking down upon the mercy seat. Now this is significant, and I'll give you the reason why in just a moment. So anyway, describing the ark of the covenant, it consisted of a box with the mercy seat above it and cherubim on each side with their wings outstretched over the box, and all was overlaid with gold. Inside the box were the tables of stone, or the Ten Commandments, on which God had written those Ten Commandments. And this served as a visible representation of the presence of God among the people through atonement of their sins by the shedding of blood. The Ten Commandments inside the ark represented God's holy character and God's demand for his people to be holy. And what we should take away from this is, you see, God is not ambivalent towards our sins. He doesn't look away pretending they're just not there. So what should we take away from this? Well, if we are to enjoy the presence in this life, that is the presence of God in our life, Well, God makes it plain, we must be holy. And gang, we mustn't ever lose sight of this. Because if we live a life that's unholy, we will forfeit the presence of God. And, you know, if we make that kind of a commitment each day, you know, just making sure that there's not anything that we're allowing to go on in our lives that's inconsistent with God's revealed word, you can be sure that you will sense the presence of God within your life. You'll know him to be there. You'll sense his hand upon your life, blessing you in everything that you put your hand to. And so don't do anything that would forfeit that presence. You know, I think a lot of people who are struggling in their walk in their relationship with the Lord is because they just lost the sense of the presence of God. But it goes right back to, it can be traced right back to the life that they're living. You see, God is a holy God. And God cannot be one with a person 
who is not holy, who hasn't made that commitment to live their life of holiness. And so we need to be very careful about that. We mustn't lose sight of this truth. And I also mentioned this last time, and I think it's worth mentioning again. You know, I think that there's a lack of teaching that demands God's people to live that life of holiness. You know, we have all of these feel-good messages about the love of God and the mercy of God and the grace of God and the forgiveness of God and the long-suffering of God. And listen, all of those things are true, but we mustn't lose sight of what's really important, and that is holiness. God is a holy God, and he demands holiness of him, from his people. Now, as Israel reflected upon God's demands for holiness, I'm sure that they were filled with despair. Why was that? Because they knew that they had constantly broken God's laws. I mean, you study the history of the nation of Israel, right? They would do good for a while, and then they would fall back into sin. They would fall back into idolatry. They would go after these other gods, and they had forgotten God. And then God would bring judgment upon them, and God used, insert, used that judgment to bring them back to that place of repentance. And then they would recommit their lives together. It was a never-ending process with Israel, right? Time and time again, you read the history of the nation of Israel throughout the Old Testament. And unfortunately, that was true. And so anyway, they knew that they had constantly broken God's laws. And thus they stood under the sentence of eternal wrath. So what could they do? How would they deal with that? Well, all they needed to do was look to the Ark of the Covenant for that answer. Now, what am I talking about? Well, I find it quite interesting that the mercy seat on top of the Ark was exactly the same width as the box containing the law or the Ten Commandments. And that mercy seat was the place where the blood of atonement was sprinkled by the high priest on the annual day of atonement, or the Yom Kippur, as we know it today. This indicated that the blood of atonement perfectly satisfied the demands of God's law. So once a year, the high priest and him alone, only once a year, Okay, no one else, only the high priest, would go beyond the veil into the Holy of Holies, and then he would sprinkle the blood upon the mercy seat for the entire sins of the nation of Israel, the Day of Atonement. And that atonement perfectly satisfied the demands of God's law. It is also striking that the cherubim that are on top of the mercy seat, it is also striking that the cherubim were turned towards each other, each one looking down at the mercy seat. Now the cherubim, and this is significant, I'll give you the reason why in just a moment, but let me give you some information about the cherubim. The cherubim, as probably many of you know, were considered the highest order of angels, and they are almost always associated with the throne of God. And as a cross-reference for this, sometime during the week, here's a little homework assignment for you. Would you read the book of Ezekiel in chapter 10, where there's a lot of information about the cherubim and the part that they play actually in heaven before the very throne of God there in heaven. In fact, the cherubim, it has been said, represent God himself. So the fact that the cherubim 
on the ark looked down at the mercy seat where the blood was sprinkled by the priest takes us to the heart of the atonement. You see, the cherubim represented God, and God did not see the law and its demands. Why? Because it was inside the box, which was covered by the mercy seat, where the blood had been sprinkled. Do you see that? God didn't see the law, but he saw the sacrifice, the blood sacrifice for atonement. So when the high priest went into the Holy of Holies, went behind that curtain into the Holy of Holies, and sprinkled the blood of sacrifice there upon the mercy seat, it indicated that the demand of God's law for the death of the sinner had been satisfied. Remember, the Bible tells us that the soul that sinneth shall surely die. So the blood of the mercy seat covered the demands of the law. You know, A.W. Pink, in his commentary, raises this question. He says, and I quote, Suppose an ark with no mercy seat. Therefore, the law would then be uncovered. There would be nothing to hush its thunderings, nothing to arrest the execution of its righteous sentence. And then he goes on to declare, and he says, thank God for the mercy seat. Now, I want you to think about this. I believe that this is a picture of Jesus Christ himself. Let me give you a cross-reference. In the book of Romans, in chapter 3, in verse 25, there Paul tells us that God the Father set forth Christ, his Son, as a propitiation for our sin. In other words, Jesus became an atoning victim. Now, that word propitiation, actually from the Greek word, hilastorian, the word propitiation in this verse is translated mercy seat in the book of Hebrews in chapter 9 and verse 5. That is, by Christ's death on the cross, Jesus became our mercy seat. So the mercy seat actually prefigures Jesus Christ. I don't know if you knew that or not. And this word propitiation or to propitiate actually means to appease or placate wrath or anger. That is the wrath and anger of God towards sin. So you see, by his death on the cross, Jesus completely and eternally satisfied God's justice. The soul that sinneth shall surely die. He offered himself to God, the Father, as the sacrifice of sinners. So drawing on this Old Testament imagery, here we can say that he sprinkled his blood on the mercy seat there in heaven. Remember, the, the temple of Solomon was just a model of the actual temple that is in heaven. And I want you to understand that. So Jesus actually entered into that temple. He went before the throne of God, and he shed his own blood and offered it as a sacrifice for our sins once and for all. In fact, again, a little homework assignment. I'll share a couple of verses from the book of Hebrews in chapter 9. But sometime during the week, if you would read Hebrews chapter 9 in its entirety, it actually speaks of Christ's work of atonement, where his work is depicted for us there in the book of Hebrews in chapter 9. But I want to share a couple of verses from that chapter 9 with you, beginning in verse 11. 
But Christ came as our high priest. Remember, as I mentioned before, on the Day of Atonement in Solomon's Temple, only once a year, the high priest alone could enter into the Holy of Holies and offer that sacrifice. But notice, Jesus here is recommended to us as our great high priest, not only mentioned here in chapter 9, but in several other places there in the book of Hebrews. But Christ came as a high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, not Solomon's temple, you see, but he's referring to that, again, the, the temple in heaven, where the very dwelling place of God. That is not of this creation, because man didn't make it. This was God's in heaven. And so we need to understand that the temple that was built by Solomon was just a model of that which actually is, exists in, in heaven. Not with the blood of goats and calves, as they did in Solomon's temple. They would, they would actually slaughter the animals, and then they would take the blood and sprinkle it upon the mercy seat. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place there in heaven once and for all. That's it. He didn't have to do it year after year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. He only had to do it once and for all, forever, and having obtained eternal redemption. And then finally, for if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh. And so Jesus received the full measure of God's wrath against sinners. And mercy was also satisfied because he took God's wrath on behalf of the believing sinner, and now there is no wrath left for the sinner to endure. Man, that's something to celebrate. Folks, this is what we need to take away from this. The Ark of the Covenant is a picture of the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, the third reason why this was a very special day, finally, because of what came down from heaven. Let's go back to our text, verses 10 and 11. And it came to pass when the priests came out of the holy place that the cloud, the Shekinah glory, that is the presence of God, filled the house of the Lord. Now, this is not the first time that this cloud appeared before the nation of Israel. There, when God had given Moses the, the law, there at Mount Horeb, right? And also when Moses erected the temple in the wilderness, the cloud came down. The Shekinah glory of God appeared before the nation of Israel. So this is not the first time this happened. Verse 11, so that the priests could not continue. They were so overwhelmed, you know, taking care of the business, you know, setting up the holy place and the holy of holies, and they were just overwhelmed. You know, some of the, the, the duties of the, of the priests, like, for example, with the menorah, the lampstand, one of the occupations of a, a group of the, the priests were to make sure that the wicks of the candles were trimmed and that there were always oil in the lampstands or in the bowls of the lampstand. So it would be perpetually lit. It would never go out, which again speaks to us how that we are to perpetually be a light shining unto the world representing God the way that he should be represented. The changing of the bread and such, and you know, every Sabbath day, putting the new loaves upon the table of, of showbread. Offering the incense upon the altar, which represents the prayer of 
God's people ascending up into to heaven. So these were all of the things that the priests were involved in there in the temple. But they could not continue. Why? Because of the cloud, the presence of the Lord, the Shekinah glory of God. For the glory of God filled the house of the Lord. So why was this a very special day? Because of what came down from heaven. This manifestation of the presence of God and his grace. Think about this. What does this represent? God condescending to dwell among a sinful people. Is there anything more gracious than that? But you know what? This is also a picture of Jesus Christ, if you think about it. All of these things prefigure Christ. All of what is recorded for us, in the, as it has to do with the temple, many of the things that are recorded for us in the, in the Old Testament scriptures, all prefigure Christ, all point us to Jesus Christ. You know, this whole idea of God condescending to dwell among sinful people. It reminds me of that text of Scripture in John's Gospel in chapter 1 and verse 4, where we're told that we're there where we're told where, you know, God became flesh and dwelt among us. Oh, could God have been more gracious than that? And so this was truly a very special day, a very special occasion for the nation of Israel. Israel. But listen, you too can have a similar experience as did Israel. How? By inviting Christ to come, to be your Lord and Savior. You too, if you haven't already, can enter into your own covenant with God. Remember the people of God during this Feast of Tabernacles, they gathered together and once again they rehearsed their covenant with God. How? By realizing and confessing that you're a sinner. Your need of a Savior. Asking God to forgive you of your sins. Asking God for a new nature. A new birth. And if you do, God by His Holy Spirit will come down, even as the Shekinah glory of God came down and filled Solomon's temple. And thus all things will become new and you'll experience a new day, a new and very special day. And listen, let me tell you something. If you haven't made that decision, I would encourage you not to delay. I want to encourage you to make that choice. And you know, this would be an absolutely appropriate time to do that as we reflect upon the work of Jesus Christ, dying for you and for me upon the cross, that we might have fellowship with the Holy God and if you haven't made that choice of decision, you just invite Christ to come. You acknowledge you're a sinner in need of a Savior. Ask Him to give you that new nature, to be born again of the Spirit of God. And God will do for you what He's done for many of us as well. In my Father's house, there's a place for me. In my Father's house. Thanks for listening today. In My Father's House is delighted to bring you Pastor Mike Venizio. Pastor Mike has been working through the book of 1 Kings, where we've encountered the reign of Solomon. One of Solomon's greatest achievements was the building of the temple. The temple he built was glorious. 
If you've ever wondered about how God feels about artistry, then you need to read 1 Kings 7, where the building and furnishing of the temple is described. Solomon could have kept it simple, but he ordered an abundance of artwork to honor God in this building. Artistry of all kinds can bring glory to God, the one who first created beauty. The first thing Solomon did when the new temple was complete was bring offerings to God. Part of our worship of God is offering Him our time and money. If you want to give to the work of God as a part of your worship, we would love to have you partner with us. It's easy. Just head over to our website, harvestnyc.org. Once again, that's harvestnyc.org. Come be a part of spreading the Word of God. In My Father's House is a ministry out of Harvest Christian Fellowship in Manhattan. If you're out of the area, we'd still love to hear from you. Please send us a quick note at harvestnyc at verizon.net. That's harvestnyc at verizon.net. It's a great encouragement to Pastor Mike and the team at In My Father's House to hear where these messages have reached. We've reached the end of our time for today, but we'll be here again next time, and we hope you will too. See you right here on In My Father's House. Oh